Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit Corin.com. Meet and Three is back! We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home. Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull. It attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Aki Kotema, food writer and director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes deep understanding Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, isakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, so I'll try to demystify it in this program with my co-guests. And my guest today is Nico Russell, who is the chef-owner of Oxalates, a beautiful new American restaurant in Prospect Heights, Brooklyn. And Nico worked in some of the greatest restaurants in the world, and after a series of pop, uh, very popular pop-up dinners, he finally opened Oxalates in November 2018. His dishes are elaborate and refined, but very reasonably priced, and Oxalis is one of my favorite restaurants in New York City for sure. And Nico incorporates Japanese flavors uniquely into his dishes as well. So today we'll discuss his cooking philosophy, his approach to new ingredients and flavors, and he applies elements of Japanese cuisine in his kitchen and much, much more. But quickly before we start, Japan Eats is available on the Heritage Radio Network website as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please don't go to iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify and subscribe to Japan Eats. And please uh, write a review. We will really appreciate your feedback. Also, if you have any ideas about topics of the show or show guests, please let, let us know. You can email us at japaneats at the Heritage Radio Network or kikokatema.com. Now let's start our conversation with Nicolas. Hello, chef. Welcome to Japan Eats. Hello, how are you? Great. So I'm very curious about this whole thing because your background is very unique. So um, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? Um, I grew up in Northern California, specifically uh, San Jose, California. Mm. So part of, just south of the Bay Area. Mm, very hot area. Yeah, it's a little bit of the warmer, you know, Silicon Valley, a bit of a warmer climate. Um, right. What I ate growing up, I think, um, I'm very fortunate I come from a household where my mother is of Filipino and Mexican descent, and then my father is of American descent, so I was really lucky eating a lot of um, kind of Chicano classics a little bit, um, dishes that my mom would kind of make from, you know, grew up eating adobo, a Filipino classic, mm. um, a lot of lumpia in my house, um, a lot of pancits, and then um, also, you know, a lot of... You know, little notes from, you know, the Mexican kitchen as well, ingredient-wise. Um, making tortillas with my mom on Saturday mornings was a thing that we did. But then also, you know, in Northern California, there's a lot of really incredible produce, obviously. Mm. So I was fortunate that I got to be surrounded by that and, you know, I get to understand what, what great stone fruit is at a young age. Um, I know it sounds kind of cheesy and pretentious, but I think it's it's true. I think it was... I didn't realize how, how lucky I was until probably at least five years ago about growing up where I grew up and got to eat what I got to eat, mm. like surrounded by all of that. Right. Yeah, it's uh, amazing. Like Filipino and the Mexican, they the, the sea of flavors yeah. and on top of Californian ingredients. So 
Yeah. yeah. I think it was like a lot of people, like I said, who grew up in the area, like a lot of people from my family for sure. It's you grew up eating um, in the Bay Area. There's a lot of you know mixed cultures, and that's kind of what what you eat. Mm-hmm. So do you think your you know childhood's taste memories kind of made you more aware, open to new flavors? I mean, I think I think a little bit. I think for I think for all chefs, um, for all people generally, actually, when you eat something as a child, it it's something you're kind of chasing for, right? Mm-hmm. When you we all have that wow moment where we're like, oh, this takes me back to something, you know. And I think that that's a special moment in mm-hmm. a restaurant, you know, when you eat something that really kind of takes you back somewhere. Right. And I think um, so. Totally, yeah. That's an asset. Yeah, it's huge. Right. Okay. So, and then you went to uh, the California Culinary Academy, which yep. is, uh, you know, one of the best culinary schools. So, but do you know, that means that you really got serious about cooking. So yeah. what made you, that decision? Uh, there's a few things. I think, you know, I was like 17, 18, pretty young and I wanted to make a decision in my life. And, um, I kind of just jumped right into cooking. Um, you know, this was well, like, <laughs> because you, you I was, well, I was really into food. Um, I was always kind of the kids snooping around. I had a lot of energy as a kid, kind of bouncing off the walls a lot. <laughs> so my mom would try to like focus me by grabbing me and just stand here, do this. Ah. And I liked that. And, um, it was something I was comfortable with. You know, I think, you know, when you're that age, you're not really comfortable with much. You don't know a lot. You know? Right. So you're like, I kind of know this thing. So, um, I, I researched the school a little bit and went in for a few interviews and started in the fall and I I loved it. Mm. I really loved it. I kind of dove, I kind of dove head first into it and I just it was like no looking back a little bit. Mm. Right. So, so I heard that you worked in restaurants in California after you graduated from uh, the culinary school. I did. I did. Um, I worked at a few. I worked at I, my my ex my first ever professional kitchen. I worked in was. The Ritz Carlton in Half Moon Bay. Um, oh my God, that's very fine dining. <laughs> it was nice. I didn't know much, right? So I was just trying to kind of figure out, and it was very overwhelming.、Um, and then I worked, worked for a few restaurants owned by Roland Peso, who owns a restaurant La Folie in San Francisco. So I worked for him for about two years,、hmm. a little over two years.、Um, and then I worked. The last job in California was a rest- small restaurant called Chez TJ.、Hmm. It's a one Michelin star restaurant in the in the South Bay Mountain View.、Um, And then, the chef there worked at Danielle.、Mm. So when I when I was leaving there, he was kind of asking me what I wanted to do, and、um, he was like, "I was like, I want to go to New York. I want to go to New York." That was kind of like what I wanted to do. I wanted to take the next step, and then kind of just further myself in my career. And then he he reached out to some people in New York, and and、uh, John Fran.、Uh, Restaurant Danielle was one of the. I took my first stage. Because、mm. so, you've been、uh, cooking French, right? Yeah, I'd been cooking a little bit, of, uh, mostly French、um, before that. So,、um, I just、uh, there was a few places I had applied to New York and I had stages at, and then you go into a place like Danielle and it's like, wow, this is <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> it's a shrine. It's, it's crazy. It's you know, it's you know, it's like Mecca. You know, for for someone like me, it was like. It was one of those kitchens that you read about, you know,、mm. and you're just like, I've heard so much about this place, and now like,、um, I'm actually cooking in this place. I thought that was, I blew my mind for a while, which it's hard to do because you actually have to do a job, you know. So like, <laughs> you're too excited about early, it. <laughs> yeah, early on, it was just like, put your head down, you know, and it was it was hard for me to kind of pinch myself a little、uh, bit. So yeah, the Dania, I think it's almost like 30 years old. Restaurants that are legendary. Oh my God! Yeah, it's an incredible place. Yeah. So, but you know, if you want to be cooking French in New York, that would be definitely one of them. I would. Unless I think it, that's the place. Yeah, yeah. it's not the top. <laughs> yeah, it was. It's really incredible. A really incredible food and、mm. the whole. It's like an encyclopedia for French cuisine.、Mm. <laughs> you know. So you know, we're going to talk more about what do you do now, Tuxtalis, but. What did you learn,、uh, Daniel? That is now active, actively used in your kitchen. I think、um, cooking the classics was a was a big thing. I think、um, the 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 menu nightly there is not the classics, so I don't want to build anyone's expectations、mm. away from that. But、um, I got to see a lot of things there that, technique-wise, that were just so rooted in history.、Mm. Right, and I love that. I'm a big history person. I love. 
everything about it, not just in food, but in many things. And I think um, I just I fell in love with that. And then um, also too, it's like we said, it's one of those restaurants that's just like always busy and very packed. So it's mm-hmm. um, you know you're you know it keeps you kind of pushing and it keeps you consistent a little bit right mm. instead of just being in a restaurant where like you're busy two nights a week and then you're not busy the other three nights mm. busy every night there you know and it's good to get it's good to work at, i always tell cooks it's good to work in places that are you know obviously it sounds kind of but it's you have to work in a place that's extremely busy because one it's a very successful restaurant but two as a cook you need to day in and day out mm. do these things over and over and over again right because it's such a practical cooking so practical mm. you know it's such a craft where it's not like you do it once and you're good you mm. know you do it ten thousand times and you're okay you right. know that's the way i think about it right mm. you know, it's almost like martial arts you yeah, train spiritually as well maybe totally and there's there's a huge spiritual factor to cooking and about just like okay i'll do it now okay then i'll do it again you know and it's just like you have to keep doing it you know and i think that you know, it's super important, mm. you know. Well, it's like pianists say, if you just don't uh, skip a try, like, you know, practice a day, you feel the difference. And if you don't practice a week, you are you have to start start over from the beginning, that kind of... Totally. Yeah. That's so true. Mm. So, um, but you said you like the classic because there's a reason for being classic, that kind of mindset. Yeah. Hmm. I, I just, no, well... I liked, I, I liked learning so much about why we did things, mm. why you do something, right. why do you put this here, why do we do this, why do we make this, we make this because we get this from this, mm. right? So there's like a reason for many things in most cuisines, mm. um, not specific to French, but I like, I loved learning about why you do something and not just because, oh, because it tastes good and it looks cool. No, that's not why you do something. Mm. There's a bigger story to why you do something. Do you have know? any example? Well, no, it's just more of kind of, um, you know, like when you make charcuterie or when you make these other things with all these, you know, when you when you have a meat, you know, when you have a, an animal, mm. you know, um, you know, I think that that's really important um, to figure out, you know, dishes to 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 utilize mm. right to create something and um i'm really trying to play specifically because I, I had a few but it's there's there's so many things i think that in in that that style of cuisine that are um not byproducts but they're in response to something else mm. which i think is extremely important in cooking mm. right like we do it a lot at the restaurant right now where you know we make a stock or we make an oil or a vinegar or whatever we make because of something else. Mm. But in the, you know, those are smaller things, but we'll make a dish because in response to what we got from something else. And it's, those are, those, that's important food, Mm. right? That food's important because instead of you just being like, look, I have this one perfect thing. It's like, no, I have this one thing. And then I also have these two other things that are maybe not as, maybe not as refined, but we we don't have to use them for the same vein, Mm. but we're utilizing what we can utilize. Right. It's extremely important, especially Mm. where we are now as a culture with food. I think it's, it's, it, I, we can't talk about it enough, how important it is right now to make sure that Mm. we're teaching the next generation of cooks to like what to do with everything you have, Mm. you know? And I think we're working really, really hard at it. Um, it's really important for us to make sure that we have something, we need to do something with it. Right. And I think it's just responsibility to introduce us as general public who's not knowledgeable enough. Like, for instance, I, you know, my favorite butcher, Meat Hook in Brooklyn, yeah. they happen to have chicken heart. Yeah. And I was like, oh, it's cheap. Let me try that. I'm yeah. so addicted to it. It's good. <laughs> yeah. It's so good. Yeah. So it's a responsibility. It's the food, you know, food cycle. And we are given. It's a life given yeah. to utilize it's respect. our responsibility as chefs i think i think that's that's the main thing that i'm trying to say was just like we have a responsibility we work we train for so long we work in these grand maisons for so long big kitchens for so long and i think that we don't do it so we have a cv at the end of it you know mm-hmm. we do it so we have the experience in the background to better to better create for you know more responsibly mm. i think i think it's that's just that's our duty that's our job right. is to not only create something delicious and beautiful but um to be responsible doing it mm. i think and you know we're six months old and we're doing our best 
and you know there's so much to, we have so far to go right you know well I can't wait to see your new menu by the way <laughs> <laughs> but uh, um, yeah that reminds me of you know Japan has been always regionally you know poor and try to pickle and save this and that there's so many regional processed food and lots of fermentation that's you know, we can discuss later because you, I know you like them. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think the point is that I think the Japanese Shintoism or some sort of religious um, idea, like when I grew up, I couldn't leave even a piece of rice in my rice bowl because there's a god in it. So, like, you have to finish it. Yeah. That kind of idea. So you respect, you're given, and that's your responsibility. That's yeah. that's beautiful. It's true. And I think it's totally true. You know, like, I mean, I don't know about that, but I just think it's, you know, when you're eating something, it's not just, you just stop and throw it away. Mm. You know, I think that's just a problem we have with some, you know, with some, some things, you know. Right. So that's another chef job. I appreciate you do. <laughs> We're trying. We're trying. Mm. Okay. So, um, so after Daniel, you went to uh, the Mirzo. In yep. France, southern yeah, France, I did. which is now, it was two Michelin stars, now three Michelin stars even. Yeah. So it's an amazing uh, place by Chef Mauro Quagreco. So yeah. why did you decide to go to France and work there? It was kind of the same thing why I decided to come to New York. I just wanted to take another step. Um, and I had met Chef Mauro at Daniel. He did a few events and then... We got to talking and I talked to some of his staff and they were really warm and great. And I loved his food. I mean, I think it's hard not to. Mm. It's extremely unique. Um, it's extremely different than anything I'd seen before. And I think he's also extremely talented. Mm. Um, so I just wanted to work for I wanted to work for him so badly. Right. Well, I would imagine you got influenced by him. So how do you describe the food at uh, Mirazo? Um, it's very obviously product driven um but it's you know it's it's unique this is very natural I, I i i gotta say we say that a lot about our food but his food in my mind is the most natural like and natural is broad but i mean it in the sense of if you get a a salad of cherries and you know wax beans and you know erica ver and pistachios i think you know you look at the salad and they tell you the ingredients but it it, it all makes sense mm. it just works like very seamlessly and effortlessly and I think that's like a lot of his food where nothing feels forced or nothing looks forced or unesthetically mm. you know rolled up or in this weird shape you know I think you're like oh this is this really naturally beautiful chicken that's been this guinea hen that's been carved or this duck from Chalon or this foie gras or these green asparagus um, or the incredible fish they get, mm. you know, it's like right on the Mediterranean. So, um, everything done there is done there with the thought of keeping it. Well, at least when I was there, I mean, with the thought of keeping it as natural as possible. Mm. So in, in other words, he reduces, um, He's extremely restrained. Yeah. to make it shine. Each ingredient shines the kind of style, kind of minimalist. Yeah. He has this talent that I, uh, it's very rare I've ever seen where he just will put a few things together and you're just like, well, it's, I never, yeah, absolutely. Mm. That's incredible. Right. You know, and I think um, he's just, he's one of the greatest chefs in the world. So mm. I think he is one of the greatest chefs in the world for a reason. And it's, you know, I think he's just, his ability and his talent is, it's incredible. Mm. Right. So do you think uh, your time in France changed your life in a way? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, experiences like that will always do something to you. Mm. Um, I was really lucky to be a part of that team. Um, I loved it. Um, you know, and I think, you know, I think I got to see a kitchen like that operating at that level. Um, and I got to see an opportunity. I got to help, um, in that kitchen as a, you know, not only just, uh, you know, a chef de partie, but like someone who could help push the menu forward. And I think that was really, that gave me a little bit of confidence, you mm. know, in a place like that where being able to be like, you know what, you know, we can all create this, like, what are we creating, you know, and like having those conversations and looking at the products and mm. seeing and doing these things, I think is incredible. Wow. Okay. I've never been, so. You gotta go. You gotta go. <laughs> I would it's love great. that. Great place. Okay. And uh, so you came back uh, from France. Uh, you were there from uh, February 2015 and January 2016. So um, 
you had to come back for visa or something like that, right? Yeah. And so, so you came back from France and started a pop-up dinners mm-hmm. um, in New York City for over a year and over 30 times, I heard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why pop-ups, not rather than spending all your energy and time to open a restaurant? Oh, you want to see if people want to eat that stuff first. Right? Mm. I think it's really important. I think a lot of people are like, oh, they're going to love me. They're going to love us, right? And they don't. Or <laughs> you haven't worked out something yet, mm. right? So we just started as a pop-up because we could do it one time or a few times. And then, you know, if it didn't really go very well, we could just say, oh, that was cool. We tried it. Nothing really happened. So mm. we'll get a job or we'll do something else. And, um... It was our way of kind of, instead of putting a ton of resources into something, because mm. we also didn't have a ton of resources. Right, right, right. Um, we just thought it was a nice way to kind of start the conversation about what we wanted to do at Oxalis. Mm. Right, so you have a great partner, uh, Steve Wong. Yeah. So yeah. he he's kind of like more management over the event side, and that's how yeah. you continued. Well, I think he was a huge part for us, um, kind of creating... The infrastructure of Oxalis, how we're going to do the pop-ups, where we're going to do the pop-ups. Mm. He and I kind of, you know, just figuring out what we're going to do and him kind of help fleshing out the concept. Mm. He did an incredible job with that. And I think he still does an incredible job with that. Um, but, you know, we wouldn't be anywhere as a restaurant where we are today without, you know, he's you know, he's from day one, my business partner, and I'm very, very lucky to have him. Mm. So, um, so you guys together were planning to open um actual restaurant eventually we we thought about it we weren't totally sure what the path was going to be to be honest um it was in the back of our minds but then after like the first six months of pop-ups maybe eight months then we were like okay we need to start Mm. looking and finding and figuring out what's next right well i would imagine it's probably easier to have physical restaurant rather than pop-up is you have to yeah. be flexible regardless the theme yeah. of the events and you have to carry stuff all over <laughs> oh my god <laughs> his back is ruined we carried so much stuff like we had like our storage unit it's just we having a restaurant is we're very fortunate right that the pop-ups came into what they became mm. you know and now that we have our restaurant but right, but you have a lot of accolades by pop-up it's yeah. like tickets sold out and they all the reviews are coming out they were good. Um, it was good for us. We got to learn a lot, right? We got to see like what we wanted to do. And like you said, it's when you're in someone else's space cooking like that, you have to be flexible. Mm. You have to be very flexible. And I think not to keep talking about it, but like working for Chef Mauro, I was like, he's very natural and things will change, mm. you know? And I think that, um, that gave me a little bit of a background in that <laughs> Okay. <laughs> flexibility, you know, mm. try to have a little bit of flexibility. Right. So you trained yourself to be flexible. He trained me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. Okay. And uh, so the for listeners who have never been to Oxalis, what's the concept of Oxalis and uh, what kind of menu do you offer? Yeah. The idea behind Oxalis is like a neighborhood bistro, mm. right? We want to offer something um, approachable and accessible for the neighborhood, but also also can deliver a little bit of an experience if you'd like. So we have a dining room. It's about 30 seats. We offer um, a carte blanche menu. It's about six courses, mm-hmm. um, four to six courses, and um, try to keep that changing pretty often for $70. And then we have a bar room behind the dining room that's kind of like an atrium, mm. open glass bar room. And then we also have a garden too. So in the bar room, you can get a la carte. Mm. We have a different menu, and you can just get some drinks at the bar, some wine, and some a la carte if mm. you'd like that, too. It's funny because you are trained in very fine dining situations, but yeah. you don't want to do anything well, out of it. I think, I think what we do at Arxalis is a little bit of my, our generation's response to fine dining. You know, I think, um, you know, I think we like, again, I trained in a lot of these kitchens. I spent a lot of time in these kitchens, but I also think that... Um, you know, what we do there is a little more, you know, we turn the music up a little bit and, you know, mm. we take the tablecloth off and, you know, we change the menu and we just, you know, it's the idea is still the similar kind of tasting format, but, you know, pretty aggressively changing. And, you know, I think for us just, you know, just kind of keeping it kind of fresh. 
Mm-hmm. You know, not living in this one space where not living in this one space where we're just like we are this and we'll be this forever. We just want to keep, you know, kind of push ourselves creatively a little bit. Can mm-hmm. organic. Organic. That's mm. a great way. I love that word. <laughs> love that. Okay, you can use that. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Hey, if you don't um, mind. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, get a free free meal. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, but how do you describe your style of food based on you know your interesting past to this Oxalis menu? Um, I think the style of food. It's still French, but I think it's a nice little mix. Um, we use a lot of. As you know, some Japanese ingredients,、mm-hmm. some Japanese techniques,、um, and we try to create something a little bit lighter because、mm. I think a lot of people's connotation of French food is is heavy, and I think that's a really antiquated idea, right?、Mm. French food isn't always like that.、Um, French is France is a regional place, you know,、yeah. as is other cuisines we've talked about today.、Um, I worked in the south of France, you know,、mm. the south of France is very different than. Other parts of France, you know, and I think that、um, it's like a California because the produce are a little bit the produce,、um, you know, and I think that for me, produce is the best way to drive like a time and a place or a seasonal cuisine, as a lot of people look for. And like, you guys are so seasonal, and we're just trying to give you the best things we can find.、Mm. That's our goal. Our goal is to find something and manipulate it minimally,、mm. um, and then, you know. Serve that in its purest form to you, right. right? And that's something I think that the that Japanese cuisine does the best,、mm. right? They serve you something so simply, and in its purest form, and that's what that's what we try to do every、mm. night, right? We get some, a really nice product that we're really proud of and passionate about, and we try very, you know, we we don't try to do a ton to it and just give you give it to you in its purest form that we think is、mm. awesome, right? Okay. Well, in Japan, people say there are twenty-four seasons instead of four, because、yeah. so that's why people were chasing, busy chasing the seasonal ingredients without touching too much, because、yeah. it's going to be gone in a couple of weeks. Absolutely.、So. <laughs> there's fifty-two seasons. Like Charlie, Charlie Trotter said, there's fifty-two seasons. You know, like fifty-two <laughs> weeks in the year, and、right. I think that, especially right now, I think,、um, you know, it's very. You, as a chef, right now, you just. It's like you're you're in a candy store. Everything is coming out for、mm. only a week here or two weeks there and three weeks there, and you know you're at like a race against the clock, you know.、Right. And use it, use it, use it, and then it's gone. And that's what food is, you know. You make something, you eat something,、mm. you know. And I think that it's very important that、um, it keeps us very open as a kitchen. Right. And I think your body also responds to the seasonality. So、mm-hmm. you absorb the seasonal nutrients in the seasonal、Absolutely. food. Absolutely. So chef's responsibility probably is not to break the nutrients in、yeah. the food too. It's、guess. so true. It's like you know we get this and、um, we're going to serve you this because it's that it's this vegetable or this product is at its peak right now,、mm. right? And、right. this is when you should eat it. Right. You know, this is when you should put it into your body. Right. You know, and I think that that's something that's.、Um, Conversation we need to have more of.、Mm, right. So you are the place. You're finding the place to. Yeah. Come on in. Come on in. Conversations. <laughs> conversations of food. Yep. All right. So we'll take a quick break here, and when we come back, we'll discuss how Nico uses Japanese ingredients with his classic French cuisine background. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view their exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? 
Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats Podcasting Live from the studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Aki Katema, and my guest today is Nico Russell, who is the chef owner of Oxalis, a beautiful new American restaurant in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn. Just as a new American, is that okay? Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. I think... Um, organic restaurant. It, it's, so, it, it's so funny because people, when we were opening, people were asking, like, what, do you guys new American? What is that? And I was like, ah. It's a great question, mm. you know, and I think it's, I think it's, um, we'd like to think of ourselves as a new American restaurant, mm. right? Um, but again, people uh, often kind of bring us back into, we are a bistro, mm. right? We are a French bistro. So my cooking background is French. Um, so we are, you know, at our core, a French restaurant, but I think this is, the food we're doing is a little bit more new American as well. Mm. Um, so it's a nice little mix, um, but I think we are a bit of both. But it's funny, actually, people say New American, right? But almost all chefs are trained classically in yeah. French. And culinary yeah. schools in this country all over. So um, it's hard. So it's, say if you say French restaurant, it's like, whoops, it's French. The kind of like, yeah. No, but it's, it, no, it's, sorry to interrupt you, but it's, 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 no, it's just true. I think we're American chefs, you know, and I think this is kind of what we're doing. So I think it's totally accurate to call, call it new American, mm. right? Because I think American cuisine is so broad and obviously very regional. Mm. Um, and, you know, I think it's one of those things that's um, kind of defined itself a little bit. Right. So interesting. I, I can just talk, discuss this whole concept of new American yeah. Versus, it's a yeah. bit of a rabbit hole. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that, actually. Yeah, because even French itself is becoming more global. Food, yeah. Right? So, anyways. So, let's talk about Japanese flavors. So, as I said, you use elements of Japanese cuisine at Oxalis. So, uh, first, how did you become interested in and learn about Japanese ingredients and techniques? Um, you know, growing up in California, there's a huge Japanese population as well. So I kind of grew up eating some Japanese food. Um, and then when I started cooking, I always, I think, you know, for, in my mind in cooking, there's like, there's two huge food, food cultures. It's the French and the Japanese. Mm. Those are the two leading food cultures in my mind, um, that are looked at as the two cultures that do it the best, like at a, at the highest level mm. in my mind. Um, that's the way I saw it as a kid. I mean, every culture does food incredibly, but um, as a young cook, I was always interested by those two cultures. Mm. And then, so, um, you know, the French is great because of history, but then the Japanese, the technique is flawless, mm. right? And the focus and, you know, the minimal, like the sim simplicity about things like we talked about where like, I think the Japanese do it, you know, when you talk about like sashimi or other things, right, where... Um, or kombu jime, like something like that, where you use kombu and you cure the fish and you still slice the fish and you eat it and you're like, well, it's so rich, but it's just, you know, the fish with kombu for a little bit, you know, something like that where it's just, it's this little, the techniques are just incredible to me mm -hmm. and they're really fascinating and um, I just loved it. I've, I've always loved Japanese cuisine. Mm, so um, did you see any Japanese ingredients in Daniel or Mirosor? Yeah, I think Japanese ingredients. I, I also think that Japan, um, I also think that Japan and France have this food relationship. It's a little bit of, from what I've seen, I don't know, I could be wrong, but I always feel like the two cultures are, they kind of like, they, they, they're, they're very close a little bit as cultures. Like the Japanese love the French, the French love the Japanese. Like at least I, at least that's what I could see when I worked in, when, when you're cooking France, um, you know, a quarter to half of the kitchens are filled with Japanese cooks. <laughs> I heard that. <laughs> it's true. It's true. They're everywhere. And, you know, um, you just don't see that in this, in America, mm. you know, you just don't see that, you know? And that was for me, um, I was like, how, how do you guys get here? And there's a little bit of a, you know, they're telling me about working holiday or other things that they do that, you know, just 
Japan and France have such a love affair with each other, I think, culturally, that it just makes so much sense. And, um, yeah. Right. I think, uh, you know, the importance of tradition, like the mindset, it's strongly shared. And, uh, I, you know, I write for Japanese chess magazine. Yeah. And it's a very strong emphasis on French, like classic French. Yeah. And then the Japanese ingredients. But still, you can see it's probably... From the same technique from 20, 30 years ago from France, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. So it's beautiful. And I think culturally, because they're opposite. And also, totally. yeah. you know, that's the kind of balance point. Yeah. yeah. I think it's good, though. It's a nice little mix. Yeah. So so the to you personally as a chef, so what's the sense of Japanese cuisine that captures you? You know, like um, the aspects of... Because that's a simplicity, but, you know, something you can actually apply in your kitchen because it's a simple or the flavor. There's a few different things, um, specifically, like, obviously the simplicity. Um, I think Japanese cuisine is extremely refined um, from a level of it's just it's extremely it's just, it's beautiful. It's refined and it's it's pure. Mm. Right. It's not watered down by, um, you know, you I'm. I always talk about it when we talk of, to the cooks about the food and they always say, oh, we're going we're gonna to add this to the dish. I'm like, no, you know, these things need to be pure and focused, mm. right? And to me, Japanese cuisine is the best representation of those two things. Mm. I think what I've heard before, French is addition, Japanese cuisine is uh, reduction. Yeah. So that's kind of... And we're trying to find a balance in the middle. Right, <laughs> you know? right. Yeah, or, you know, the combination of both, one one part very enriched and one part very minimized. Yeah. Yeah, that's the contrast. But, uh, yeah, but your background is classic French, so how can you find the meeting point of that on your dish? You know, it's, it, you know, I, I think the lines are so blurred now. Um, that we're looking for ingredients that we are passionate about mm. um, and techniques that we are excited about. And, um, you know, for us, instead of adding salt to this broth, um, you know, we use white soy, you know, mm. or we use something else that helps give it a little something. If we want to cure a scallop, we don't just make a salt cure. We use miso. Mm. Right? And that's like a nukazuke kind of the similar idea to something like that, right? right? So uh, let me stop here. So the... You know, white soy, it's it's saltier than regular soy, but yeah. umami because yeah. it's fermented, and um, yeah, so that you mentioned kobujime too, so it's kind of like umami elements added to it. Yeah, a little depth. Again, uh, we're trying to reduce what's on our plate, mm. so finding ways to add a little bit more um, mm. savoriness and add a little bit um, of extra to the dish mm. without adding another puree or another sauce or another right. something else, right? And uniquely, you mentioned nukazuke, right? So that's basically pickled pickles made in brine and fermented rice bran. Yep. That's nukazuke, right? So what kind of nukazuke? Uh, we, make some, we make some pickles um, with some vegetables, but we did a, we actually um, kind of did it with scallops mm. in the winter mm. as a starter where we kind of covered... Um, these really beautiful scallops in uh, some rice bran for a little bit and mm. then gave them about a few days in there and then we sliced them up and served them with some fresh apple juice wow. and that was the starter in the dining room for most of our winter mm. during the shellfish season. Right, so rather than the regular scallops, uh, you, you feel more depth? Sweeter. Sweeter. Right? Um. There's super sweet. Um, it just, the I mean, it was it was just... You know, it was a very clean scallop flavor, and it was also very, uh, it just kind of helped. It did that thing that we talked about earlier. It helped the scallop become a bigger star, mm. right? And I think that it just kind of made that just really pure scallop flavor and just made it really more prominent. Mm. And then also, and we served it with just very simply with some fresh apple juice and radishes, and it was it was a nice little cold starter for the wintertime. Mm. So the contrast of the sweetness and the acidic yeah. Flavor. That's maybe from a Californian idea. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> um, also, um, do you have any other favorite um, ingredients, Japanese ingredients that you use? Um, we use a ton. We use, obviously, you know, a ton of different, you know, bonito and kombu. Um, 
We use sakikasu a good mm. amount right now with our asparagus, our green asparagus dish right now. So what's um, sakikasu for listeners who's not familiar with? Yeah, so it's the it's the byproduct of the sake making process. Mm, it's like know? a mash. Yeah, it's like a mash. It's it like a like a light tan mash that we um, we do is we we take it's like a paste basically, right? Mm. So we we t- we take a pan and we saute a little bit of aromatics, a lot of ginger, a lot of shallots, and then we make some. We have a little bit of sakikasu and we just toast that for about an hour huh, interesting. And, then, and we add a little bit of butter there so the butter starts to brown mm. so it gets nice and toasty and then we add a little bit of veg stock and actual sake in there and we cook it and then we blend that smooth wow. and then we serve that with asparagus green asparagus so it's a sakikasu puree it's like a yeah it's like mm. a puree or a sauce that we um we think i mean i think it tastes a little bit like has a little bit of a parmesan flavor mm. oh, because and of the toastiness yeah, and then um, obviously asparagus and parmesan. Right. So. Wow, beautiful. Yeah. Ah, well, I, I've never thought of, you know, cooking sake kasu because usually I just use it and marinate. Yeah. Which does the magic overnight. But yeah, yeah that's amazing. Yeah, it was cool. I think um, that one, uh, I had I never used it before, and then uh, someone brought it to me, and I played around with it for a few days. and. We got something that we liked, and mm. uh, it happened to line right up with green asparagus. Wow. I want to have it. <laughs> I want to eat it. Come back. Yeah, I will. And also, I think uh, you liked um, uh, togarashi. Oh, I love togarashi. Mm. I like spice. Mm. So togarashi, basically, it's uh, no Japanese uh, chili, but it's called takanotsume. Yeah. It means like falcon's nails, kind of, oh, yeah. Yeah, because of the shape, I think. But it's milder. Yeah, right. what is it? Shichimi. Yeah, shichimi uh, is. Orn. It's the pepper. Yeah. Right, so ichimi is just, uh, you know, takanotsume. <coughs> Excuse me. But if you add six other, shichimi is seven. So if you add six other ingredients, such as, um, I think, uh, black pepper, sancho pepper, orange peel, uh, poppy seeds, hemp seeds, those things, then it, it depends if, depending on the producer, but the seven elements. You had the trout. You had the trout when you came in? The, um, the togarashi with the trout? I think you did. But yeah, we we, we, we used togarashi a good amount. Mm. And um, we just did a... I was, I was asking because during that winter time we did a, on the tasting, we did um, a trout dish. Mm. I think I did, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was the smoked trout with a little bit of cauliflower mm. and togarashi. So I think that was shining because it's not overwhelming. It's so yeah. balanced. So, yeah, and that the shichimi is a magic because oh it's my a God, so good. blend of good stuff. I also love spicy food, so you're going mm. <laughs> to... So for me, I'm like, when someone, you know, I always try to find a way to throw just a little bit of something acid. I mean, like a lot of chefs, acidity, spice, smoke, mm. big flavors we love, obviously. But we need to find a way, like we're trying to find a way to add them in like a refined way to the menu. Mm. So... Well, the overwhelming other ingredients, so totally right. Like, you want to eat the whole thing. You don't want to just like have a whole bite of pepper. Right. Um, the other thing is um, binchotan. I found the name on the menu. Yeah. Yeah. So, what's special about binchotan? Well, binchotan basically it's uh, the charcoal grill. Yeah, it's like the hardwood. Right. You know, and it's burns a lot hotter for us. Great for searing for us. Mm-hmm. Um, and. We also like to add a little bit of, like I just said, a little smoke and kind of the grilling a la minute um, aspect instead of just having like a grill plate on. Um, it gives a different flavor, obviously. Mm. It's, um, we, we, th- one, that flavor of that kind of charcoal grilled something is one of those things that uh, it, it's, it's like a memory. We all have a memory of eating at a grill mm. outside, right? I think that... We're constantly trying to find moments like that throughout the night to give you a memory like that or something. Right. Almost everybody has that memory. Yeah, totally. Right. Everyone everyone should have that memory. It's a great thing to have. <laughs> yeah. Well, actually, Binchotan is different slightly because it's more, it's harder. Mm-hmm. It doesn't smoke too much because it's yeah. already cooked so much. That's why it's very expensive, I think. <laughs> yeah. Burns very hot, too. Mm. Burns very, very and hot. And for a long time. Right? Yeah. So, anyway, so that's amazing. Um, well, this is not Japanese thing, but I was so impressed by your dish on rutabaga. Oh, yeah. Yeah, with that, uh, you know, the fluffy sauce made with acidic fontina cheese. 
yeah. cream and powdered coffee beans. Yeah. And it was so good. I was like, wow, this is amazing. You like that? Yeah, that's good. Thank you. That was, uh, yeah, it was, um, we were trying to find something to do with rutabaga. Mm. And, um, I mean, rutabaga, who, whoever eats that, right? It's not the, well, that's the point, beautiful right? thing, but I was like, oh, I can, I can go back there just for this every <laughs> week. Really yeah, good. we, uh, that was, yeah, that one we were really, we were happy with that one. Um, we just trying to find a way to kind of create something like, um, with a little bit of sherry too. So like all those kind of oxidized orange flavors, a little bit rutabaga, mm. um, you look at the color of the, of the vegetable, it's kind of orange, you know, you use the wine it's a little oxidized, mm. you know, the cheese has a little bit of an oxidized note to it. Right. Um, and then the coffee for, for us, we needed something to kind of help wash your mouth of that Um, and the coffee I think did a really great job of we kind of used it we used the coffee in the sense of um, kind of just going kind of taking everything in your mouth and just taking it with it Mm. so when you finish the dish that was a big surprise pleasant surprise I was like wow what is this coffee doing yeah Yeah. a lot of people read that dish and were like "Ah, nope you know and then they would eat it and they'd be like wow okay and um we really, you know, it's exciting. Like we talk about not only meat or other things that people don't want to eat, but, you know, like rutabagas, you know, like things like that, that mm. you go to the, you go to a farmer's market in the middle of February, mm. not a ton there, you know, <laughs> um, but you know, there's still people there and they still are bringing you rutabagas and beets and all these other things. So mm. as a chef, it's our responsibility to try to find something, right. you know, we're professionals is what we do. Right. Um, to do something with them. So that's a great example that you use through in, you know, in out of order balanced ingredients, you threw in coffee flavor. That's a very bold move to me, but you effortlessly did it. So, yeah, that's why I think you can utilize Japanese ingredients really yeah. like seam- seamlessly. Thank you. Yeah, I really appreciate that. So, thank you very much. Yeah. So, uh, do you think Japanese ingredients and flavors can be used in other types of cuisine, such as French? And beyond. Yeah, totally. Mexican, Filipino. Yeah, <laughs> totally. I think, you know, the Japanese ingredients, I think the culture with Japan and food is just so strong. And the products they create, um, the ingredients that they have are are so incredible that I think any culture, you could use them in any culture. Mm. You know, I think that that cuisine, you know, it could it, they could have a role for anything. Mm. I think it's really, really, really special ingredients in Japanese cuisine. Mm. Right. It's not, um, it's not mostly, not like sauces. It's more like, you know, kombu yeah. or bonito. So you can just... No, but like kombu it. and bonito, like we like bonito. Our mouth likes bonito, right? Because of like amino acids, mm. right? That's what happens, right? <laughs> to the fish. It's on it, actually. Right. <laughs> exactly, right? That's like, it's the natural response to our mouth, to our brain about what's happening here. And we're just... Um, we, you know, that can be used in many things, many cultural cuisines that serve you. You go somewhere and you get a, like a fish soup or something. Mm. It can add a little depth to it. You know, any of these things I think that are really, really, really special and give you a lot of flavor. Mm. Okay, so I can wait to how you use all those Japanese ingredients more. So um, have you been to Japan? Never been. Mm. Never been. I'd love to go. I got a few friends there, so I'm going to take them up. Gotta go see him. Yeah, so I think things getting ready. You open, you know, for after a year, it's ready to. Gotta go. Yeah. Gotta go. Gotta go to Japan. <laughs> I'm excited. Yeah, so can we keep me posted? I will. And if you're gonna come back, you can just talk about your experience and yeah, new that'd discoveries. be great. Yeah. So, what's your plan other than going to Japan? <laughs> In regards to moving forward a little bit with a restaurant, I mm-hmm. think you know we're six months old as a restaurant. I think we are. Kind of every month, we can kind of feel us kind of growing a little bit, um, you know, and just kind of making sure that we we keep the space as what we set it out to be, right? Mm. A space that's accessible, approachable, but still offers something um, unique and creative. And right? it's and beautiful special. space too. Yeah, thank you so much. Mm. Thank you. We're very, we're very, very grateful for the space we have. We love it. We wouldn't change it for the world. It is, it's stunning. And we like that. I mean, you've been, the kitchen is the first people you see. Yeah. I was just going to say that. <laughs> yeah. So, And we're talking about the energy of the kitchen, right? It's a busy restaurant. And I'm very sensitive to that energy of the restaurant because it's, 
if it's not good, you feel it. Yeah. And you see it on the plate too. But uh, at Oxalis, you open the door, and then first thing you see is just people in the kitchen. Yeah. You greet everybody. So that's an amazing, unique setting. Yeah, I thought when we built the restaurant, that's kind of where the kitchen was. And we had a huge conversation about should we do something to hide it or should we like keep it open? And a lot of our pop-ups were just in open spaces mm. where there was like one kitchen and everyone sat around right. us like a <laughs> counter, you know, and we're like, let's do it. It's fine. It, it's going to be great too. And how many restaurants in New York do you walk in and the kitchen's like, Hey, what's going on? Mm. You know? And like, you know, it's, they greet you, you know, they, you don't just walk by people that are just like, they're busy, but they greet you. And mm. I think that we wanted to make it feel like our home. Right, it's our home, right? Yeah. Like, hey, welcome, welcome to our home. Let let us cook for you. Mm. That's what we want to do. It's very straightforward. It's like a dinner party, right? Yeah. Well, actually, when you go visit your friend's house and the, the kitchen is open, yeah. and you feel more safe, and you know, it's a trust issue, right? Totally. Yeah. That's that's a huge thing for us, and it's 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 nothing to do with anything else. We just want it to feel like you're coming to our home. Mm. We're gonna cook for you. We're very excited to have you here. Thank you for choosing us. Big city, a lot of restaurants. Mm. Very happy you chose us. And, you know, just kind of welcome in. Relax. Sit back. In the dining room, the menu's chosen for you regarding mm. any allergies. And, you know, enjoy your company. Enjoy, you know, the music. Enjoy the ambiance. Happy to have you. Mm. Very straightforward. I can't wait. Yeah, you got to come back. got to have <laughs> you back. Will. Yeah, so uh, where can we find you online? Um, our website is oxalisnyc.com. Mm. Um, you can find us there. And then our Instagram is the same, OxalisNYC. That is our Instagram. Um, Twitter, the same, OxalisNYC. And uh, yeah. Amazing. Awesome. All right. So thank you for your precious time today. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. So looking forward to your return. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right. So listeners, uh, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds.heritageradionetwork.org or kikwatem.com. Japan Needs is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer today is uh, Matt Patterson, and thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.